You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, I'm Gino Borges, curator of the Journey to Impact podcast series. Joining us today is Ruth Shaber. Ruth was the founder, is the founder, and president of Terra Health Foundation, which promotes health, well-being, an opportunity for women and girls through innovative, evidence-informed programs. She's also the co-founder and board chair of RIA Ventures, a group of foundations and investors that collaborate to bring new types of capital and enterprise to the field of reproductive health in the United States. Ruth started her career as an OBGYN at the Kaiser Permanente South San Francisco Medical Center in the early 90s. Ruth is also a member of Tonic, Tonic's mission is to activate impact investors toward a more sustainable global financial system, which creates positive social and environmental change. I'm also proud to announce that this conversation with Ruth is brought to you as a part of a partnership between Poetry of Impact and Tonic. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you so much. Well, it's really great to have you here because I feel like you're turning the whole um, philanthropy uh, model upside down and um, you're being um, in some ways unabashed about it. It's like it's like it, like the time is now. It's sort of silly to, for us to pretend that we have all these different silos. I'm curious about where that sort of that moment of truth came for you and saying, no, I'm all in. It's like whatever I own, whatever I touch, whatever I don't own, but yet still influence, I'm all in on the mission. That's an interesting question, and I'm not exactly sure when it happened. I can give you some suggestions as to when it happened. I spent my career both as a clinician and also as an executive at Kaiser Permanente and was very much head down doing my job and, and changing the healthcare system um, from the inside out. Very proud of the work I did there. But I really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to how my own personal investments um, were being made. I trusted family members or investment advisors. And it was um, not until relatively recently, about 10 years ago, when um, I became responsible for my own assets and realized that um, there was a huge opportunity and that there was an opportunity to link up my personal uh, mission that I had developed and honed as a physician and, and also my personal activism around how I invested my money. But I think that the most significant event that happened to me is I had a very short employment at a very, very large foundation in the um, Northern California Bay Area. And I was recruited to work on a very generous patient care program but it was my exposure to the lack of attention to the investment strategy of this foundation. And that while the program and the grant making was very generous, the, the amount of money that was in the endowment of this foundation that was not being applied to this mission 
was extraordinary um, and horrifying. And I think that's really when I made the pivot. So what, 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 and you mentioned some moment, uh, enabling moment 10 years ago, um, you know, a decade ago. So, I mean, what, like, when did the intention and resources converge? Like, oh, so not only do I have this intention, but all of a sudden now I'm a steward of something, um, you know, uh, of a resource pile that's much larger than what I need for my own individual um, existence. Well, uh, frankly, it was when my um, ex-husband and I separated. Uh, he was very successful in um, biotech. And when we were approaching our wealth, our relatively new wealth as a couple, it was very different than the moment when I realized that as an independent individual and my portion of our assets were suddenly my own responsibility. And actually, the first thing that um, our investment advisors did, and these two advisors are still um, actively managing our portfolio at Tara Health, they sent me to financial boot camp. And it was actually financial boot camp for women. And it was a tremendous gift because, you know, an act of the world and how capital deployed that I just totally ignored for all of my adult life really became revealed to me. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And I'm not sure how things would have evolved if I hadn't separated from my husband, if I would have, um, if it would continued as a partnership, it may have been very different. But when it was my own resources, it became really the accountability and responsibility changed very much. So, so in terms of your art, the, uh, you know, to learn about finance and capital formation, because if you read about Tara Foundation, you talk about all different creative ways of capital stacking and making. Um, so you can see that there's a fair amount of um, financial magic going on. Uh, did you back into the finance? Because it seems like you led with medicine and then you happen to have this enabling event that really created this vacuum for a financial um, a financial education, in essence. I think that's a fair way to say it. I um, I was obviously a curious enough person for, to to realize that there are many ways to solve problems. And so, in my background as an evidence based medicine um, uh, provider, and um, all of my roles as an executive at Kaiser Permanente with systems change and how do you actually measure. And so I, I knew that there was tremendous opportunity to do things differently. And so with my exposure to finance and as that education advanced and as I had the opportunity to learn more and more, the opportunities to apply this new framework, new to me, not you know, very old to the sure. world, but to me, to the, the problems that I saw um, became revealed. And I also had in my, in my role in my work at Kaiser Permanente, I had the chance to be involved with different types of financing, certainly around uh, product development or uh, KP had for capital uh, department. I, I was a consultant too. So I had enough exposure to be able to put some of the pieces together and really understand where my gaps were. And then just be willing to ask questions and not make any assumptions. And um, just to be clear with people that I'm learning and um, to, to deconstruct what they're telling me and to not speak in jargon and to be willing to challenge assumptions, um, not to be not willing to be intimidated, not letting them tell me over oh, there, you know, just let me take care of this. And, and um, it's really paid off. So I had... Uh... 
I've talked to a few uh, people and friends that have been in a similar situation where all of a sudden it's like, yes, I mean, you had this moment where uh, wealth was shared between you and your husband, but then all of a sudden there becomes really this exclusive autonomous moment where all of a sudden you, you went through this education moment and um, was there ever a moment where all of a sudden you started to propose your ideas and all of a sudden the old guard says, whoa, 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 you know, that's probably not what you want to do because people with this kind of resources usually do X, Y, and Z. Um, and so can you, because uh, I think that inevitable, fric- or I think that kind of friction is inevitable because they're fiduciary and that's in big scare quotes because, I mean, that's just, you know, for, you know, I mean, just real obvious things, but, um, you know, their fiduciary responsibilities is to pump the brakes and yet, right. you know, to see to pump the brakes. And yet here's Ruth saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, I'm all into this. I'm into this health issue. I see problems. I see where we can do stuff. This is way more than what I need for my own, own individual existence. Let's go do this. Let's make it happen. Well, absolutely. There were plenty of naysayers. And I I don't think that um, I I think I was fortunate enough to not have them directly um, in my inner circle. And I really recruited people (laughs) who. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the luxuries of being um, the sole member, for instance, of the the foundation was that I could really surround myself with people who were had already drunk the Kool-Aid and had bought into or at least were willing to hear me out. You know, they were willing to hear me out. But I certainly have been exposed to plenty of. of folks in my oper- in, in in my influence conversations or my you know trying to be proselytized for this the, the traditional paradigm that foundations um, in, for example but this is true for any entity or an endowment of any kind or an individual you know family office whether it's incorporated as a foundation or not the the mental paradigm that the investments actually generate the income that then the philanthropy and grant making should should be based on, I think it's really the, the other way around, uh, that the primary purpose and, and opportunity for social impact from a foundation or any of these in, institutions is actually how we invest and that we should use our philanthropy and grant making to learn how to invest better. So it's really turning the whole thing upside down. I heard a quote last week at uh, SOCAP from um, um, Erica... I want to get her name right from Erica Seth, Seth, no, Erica Seth Davies, who said that um, foundation, I'll I'll paraphrase, foundations are in the business of investing. They just do a little grant making on the side. (laughs) And that's, you know, if 95% of your assets are invested in the market, then you're an investor. And we need to make sure that our, that we own what we own. Yeah. And that we understand um, how our capital is being used across all financial vehicles. So would you? So do it, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead and round out that. No, that's all. I, I was just going back to your original question about naysayers. I, I think that I feel strong enough about this that I haven't. Pretty easy to shut people down and move on, and and um, and choose to work with the people who are believers. Sure. So, and you've had your foundation set up for how, approximately how long, Ruth? Well, we started in 2014 and with the intention of being a 20-year spend down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've actually accelerated that given the times and the urgency to deploy capital with this year with 
the pandemic and the movement for black lives and the tremendous economic devastation in the United States, we've actually accelerated so that we will be done in 16 years. So our plan is to deploy all the capital by 2030. And would you do it again in terms of setting up the foundation the way you did? I'm too curious about what the learning lessons um, now that you've been in, in this for a little bit more than a half a decade, in essence. Um, like, like, are there things of like, hmm, I had to go back. Maybe I would just set it up as an LLC, put all my money in there and have an, like a ridiculous amount of autonomy or like just sort of take me through sort of the learning lessons and the things you like and and the things that you just find recurringly limiting as a result of being set up the way you are. I have no regrets. The foundation um, I was able to recruit two board members who were both dear friends and, and brilliant in their own fields. And, um, ever, and every step of the way we recruited, whether staff people or advisors who have a different life experience that they can bring to bear, whether in subject matter expertise or um, lived experiences. Um, we've included our investment advisors at the board level every step of the way. So they are fully engaged with our mission and understand that they are crucial to our mission. So it's not just a side thing. Um, we've um, grown from being a, a relatively active board. And as our staff has increased in size, there's been more of a governance board. And um, now we're building out new portfolios that will require us to reach out into the communities. We've had a very strong um, um, involvement with um, in enhancing our approach to racial equity this past year. And we hope to incorporate some new models next year in how we do our grant making. Um, and as you can see, we're evolving. And every year, it's something a little different. And, and I think that the, a foundation has served my purposes very well because it's given me that flexibility to grow and learn and change over time. And um, I don't think, I, you know, there certainly are other models that could have also worked well, um, but it's, I have no regrets. I'm not someone who looks back and regrets much. Um, I certainly have done my own investing with my personal portfolio and there have been um, investments that I've made that have been outside of um, our mission at Tara Health. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm glad that I reserved enough capital to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, it's worked for me. And I think that there's a lot that we've learned that are applicable, that's, that's applicable to any um, structure. So I hope, you know, large part of our mission is actually to share what we've learned and to all of the tools and resources that we've developed, we make public. And um, hopefully we can influence asset owners with much, much more at stake than what we have in order to um, improve impact. Yeah. So you mentioned the whole spin down thing. And I know that's a big uh, uh, philanthropic, I mean, the old sort of legacy uh, philanthropies sort of love to sort of hang on all the capital, in fact, grow their capital, right? Um, and so can you take us through that process? Um, to me, if I was in that situation, I suspect that there would have to be some sort of my ego would have to get into the mirror and say, uh, you know, you had to do, or I suspect that there was some amount of work at an identity level to actually choose to do this or what inside of you says like, yeah, it's a no brainer to spin this down. Essentially, this, this is a project that is likely going to um, 
underlive you uh, and you will outlive it. Uh, so in essence, it's just another chapter in your life. And yet a lot of foundations turn into really an identity um, thing for the original founders and, and the family members. And yet you've really dispelled that and says, nah, I mean, yeah, I'm all in on this, but it's a chapter in my life type of thing. So was there that moment or was it just clear to you right off the bat? Like, I don't want to do this for, I don't want to have all this money for a hundred years just sitting there. Well, you've, you've said it all very well. Um, so I agree with everything that you said. Um, I certainly, you know, our Andrew Hart Carnegie wrote a great article about philanthropy is for the, for the living. And I had already come to my personal opinion about it before I read that. So it was just um, very validating. I, Philanthropy is an extremely personal journey, and it's it had ego and power and all of that is so integral to philanthropy. And when I decided that this was how I wanted to spend the second half of my my life, I knew that I was essentially buying myself a new career. That I that I wanted to be all in. I wanted to be fully engaged. I was going to be in, and I have the luxury of being the founder, um, board chair, president, and I get to also do staff work and um, manage, manage programs. And that's what I wanted. It's not right for everybody, but that is what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I also knew that I didn't want a legacy. There, was, there wasn't any reason for me to create something that then would be passed down, whether to my family or to, to anybody else. On the other hand, there are things that we've incubated, particularly re-adventures that you mentioned in, in my introduction, which is a, a shop that's looking at the intersection between reproductive health and, and business and investing. And, and that is its own 501c3. So it's not a family foundation. It's, a, it's its own nonprofit. And I would love to see that endure and to see that um, entity live well past my own um, attention and, um, and contributions. So the distinction between a personal family foundation and then other um, enterprises, I think is very different. So I, so I suspect, and you know, the, the people that I know have gotten into medicine and I suspect that you had a, a deep desire early on in life. Like I want to do medicine. Um, you not only, I uh, went to medical school, but you probably did an extended residency as a result of being an OBGYN. I suspect that there's like additional layers that one has to, uh, uh, layers of apprenticeship and practice and so forth. Do you miss it? Um, I mean, that had to be in your bones to some extent and probably still in your bones, right? I mean, your marrow is, is in medicine to some extent. Oh, well, I like that. I like that self, that identity. Um, I think I've had some... Um, um, opportunities to reflect on the themes in my life and what are consistent. And certainly I can, I think I am a healer. I think that I'm a nurturing person and that is why I survived a very grueling training in medicine and, and a, you know, a difficult, a challenging career. And I think at my core, I want to fix things. And um, whether it's one-on-one -on -one with a patient in a, you know, in a very personal situation uh, delivering their baby or managing their end of life. It's a, it's, ex, it's a very, um, if you're in, at your essence, a problem solver or nurturing person, it's, it's extremely satisfying career. 
But as I advanced in my career, I found other opportunities to change whole systems that I believe have that same impact. You don't have that personal touch anymore. But when, you know, in every step of my career, as I moved into new ways to change the a whole program or how a huge system like Kaiser Permanente takes care of people who have heart disease or cancer or um, pregnancy-related problems, it obviously, it's still at my core. I'm solving problems and, and providing that healing, but I have the opportunity to impact so many more people. And then, you know, with, with the foundation work and certainly with our opportunity to change how capital is used to solve problems, you know, the, there's an, uh, no limit to the opportunities to change and help people. I mean, it's still at its core, it's about helping people and um, usually helping women, which is also the theme that runs through my, um, both my, my clinical background and my executive work at Kaiser and certainly my work in philanthropy and investing. So how, do, so you, you originally started off the, you know, in the world of medicine from a personal touch. Um, you know, you talk about as a high personal touch. And then you reframed as like, I have a thread of helping people. And so now I can, you moved into helping more people rather than interpersonally, more of on a mass level. Um, and so, yes, you're helping and you're helping more people. Just curious about where sort of like you receive that level of, and like, you know, I mean, one just can't draw personal touch because, of the, because there's something inherently abstract. Right about systems change, right? I mean, I don't think we come out right. of the womb <laughs> destined as, as somatic animals to be like working all cognitively on constructs. Like, I mean, there is sort of a, like a warmth need that we have to be somatically connected. Just very curious on how you feel that now. And it's from my, the people I work with. And um, certainly in my executive career at Kaiser, I always had large teams of um people working for me or working uh, or peers working with me. And um, I think that's where I got my juice is from those mentorship roles, always um, looking for the next intern, the next person who is going to be able to um, have their career advance because, because I was able to be in their life. And, and certainly with our team now at um, Tara Health Foundation, that's absolutely how I feel. And that's where I get that that personal energy from is the connection I have with my, with my team. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, but it's the same energy. It's, I'm going to fix these problems. So I do, you know, it's, it's understanding myself to know that sometimes you just can't, sometimes you you can't heal everybody. You can't, you have to um, be supportive and help guide a path, but people have to make their own decisions and just like practicing medicine. Yeah, so sort of take us through a moment. So I get the impression that, I mean, you're definitely an achiever, a doer, and so forth. But there's inevitable moments in life where it's, you know, it's a palliative moment where you realize like, ah, you know what, I mean, the universe is not going to go for this situation being fixed. Um, what goes through you when the bulk of your day is spent doing when you encounter these what I refer, would refer to as palliative moments, essentially, where, <laughs> where, 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 where isness is beyond any, uh, which is beyond the reach of any doer. 
essentially is just saying, look, sorry, but this is the way life's going to play out right now. I, do, you, do you have private therapy hours that you set up? Because um, that, and, and, you know, in these very challenging times on a personal level, um, for those listening who have family that are impacted or personally impacted by the, um, the perfect storm we're in, uh, certainly as a foundation, there's an infinite number of things that we could take care of mm-hmm. or not. And or try to take care of. And so for me, my personal approach, which is not necessarily the right one for everybody, is to select where you think you can have the biggest impact and um, to lean into those. And so is that is that a palliative care metaphor? If you're taking care of somebody who is dying of cancer and you're just going to lean into I'm going to make that as comfortable as possible. Or I'm going to make sure their family gets everything they need. So then what, what can you do? You're not going to cure them. You're not going to um, change the trajectory for their disease. I think in the, in the United States right now, there's an infinite problems to fix. Yeah. Um, what we try and do is look at our resources, the money we have, the, our human capital, what we're good at, where we have the right networks and connections, um, and lean into those. And, and really try to not get despondent about the things that we can't fix, but there sure are plenty. Yeah. So you're saying that it's, um, um, I mean, do you encounter this, these moments where it's like you realize that the extent to which you're given or the way that you're giving is actually, um, you know, I notice that if I'm giving I always learn that I'm giving too much too late and, and my body always tells me, right. I end up, end up getting, I end up getting, you know, maybe I get sick as a result, like, because I just run myself down in terms of self care. I'm curious about how you sort of track yourself in terms of you're giving, you're given an enormous amount for one mortal soul on earth. You're, you, you give an enormous amount. A lot of people who listen to this are also big givers but what comes up as a particular theme is like there's a moment of truth where all of a sudden the self-care voice says, can you just pause for a second and take care of this soul right. for a bit? Right. Yeah. We had that conversation on our staff um, meeting earlier meeting um, next week. And I don't know if the date when this will be aired, but um, we're less than a week away from the election. and. Um, we are talking about the impact of particular scenarios on um, the world and the destabilization of our country, potentially. We are talking about um, the impact on our grantees and what they might need in terms of resources. We are also talking about the the, um, pandemic and how it's um, surging in so many areas and the impact on the workforce and um, the not just the enterprises and, and the work they're doing, but their actual workforce and having to lay people off. And so how, what, what can we do in that regard and getting more money in a rapid response fashion to them? Um, what about no cost extensions or letting them change the nature of their grant making? Um, how are we thinking about our investment portfolio and our portfolio companies and our private? So we're th- talking about all of this, different scenario planning, but then what we spent the most time talking about was self-care. Mm. And, you know, you, you got to, if you can't take care of yourself, 
then we can't do any of that other work. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, the oxygen mask comes down. You got to take your breath first before you help. <laughs> that's the right. That's and, right. and that's really what it's, and it's really what it's about. And so I hope that I'm modeling that, you know, we talked about things like social media. Is it a trigger for you? Can you just turn it off? Um, who needs extra time off next week just to be in, you know, in the moment or supporting other family members. So I think that um, as an organization, Tara Health is really trying to model um, what we would hope all of our uh, grantees and certainly what are good business practices. And you have to invest in your own workforce, just like you have to invest in your own mental health. Mm -hmm. So that was a long answer. But. You know, I'm, I'm going to circle back to, um, you know, I know a lot of uh, people know you um, in the context of women's health and reproductive health. <clears throat> Was there something um, like beyond, you know, I mean, yourself being identified, uh, you know, I mean, as a woman, I mean, what like in particular that you see from a systems change perspective and like, this is the bet we should be making um, because of X, Y, Z. So I'm we, so glad you asked me that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So this certainly starts my personal experience as a physician that we know that family planning is one of the most important elements of an individual woman's life in terms of optimizing their own social and economic outcomes and their ability to be active um, in whether it's in school or as professionals or, but it's also, it, there's so much evidence that, that it's important for their own family too, not just her own outcome, but the outcome for their whole family. And certainly there's tremendous evidence that, um, family planning not only benefits that woman and that family, but also the communities they live in and the countries they live in. So that family planning is actually not only did I bring my own personal experience and what taking care of women and addressing their family planning needs are, but um, recognizing that this was an essential level lever, an essential lever across all SDGs. In fact, at one of the tonic um, annual meetings a couple years ago, we had um, poster boards up all around the room with every one of the United Nations sustainability goals. And what the task was for the tonic members was to take post-it notes and put the intervention that they would make on across all of these poster boards. And I was um, notable because I put family planning on every single one. <laughs> and we know that we know that no matter what problem you're trying to solve, whether it's climate change or poverty alleviation, or job creation, um, clean water, that family planning is one of the most, if not the most important levers. And the, the thing about it is that it's fixable. The technology is there. And the, in the United States, for sure, and also around the world, it's an undercapitalized market. So if you're not just putting a philanthropy hat on, but looking at um, investments, that the amount of resources that go into um, new technology development or new technology platforms or um, investments at any level, it's like one one hundredth of what is deployed for cancer prevention or cancer technologies, for instance. And the percentage of the population that's impacted and the long-term impact on all of the other social outcomes is just blows cancer treatment out of the water. 
And so why, why do we have that mismatch? What's going on here? Why um, another opportunity that I feel really strongly about for um, the business case for um, companies to be providing a robust reproductive health insurance coverage and access is off the charts, you know, in terms of marginal, uh, in terms of material risk to a company, if you have your operations in a state that has banned abortion and you have a significant female workforce and reproductive age, and those women who are going to want abortions, that's just the way it is, whether you like it or not, they're going to have to postpone their procedures later, a higher risk for them, or they'll have pregnancies that they don't want and they impact not only on their mental health, but their work productivity because of that. Across the board, corporations, public companies need to understand that it's in their business interest to provide quality, accessible reproductive health care. So, so those are just, I mean, I think I feel strongly about it. It's a lever that is easy to make the case for no matter what you're working on. And um, so signing up for that um, was, was really easy. You know, it's, you know, what's so interesting about that reframing that you talked about in terms of um, it, it, when you frame it as a business risk, it almost reminds me of what's happening in climate right now. Once all of a sudden mm-hmm. climate became a business risk, all of a sudden um, it got, it, 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 what happens is the business risk took over political risk or the political calculus all of a sudden has something to confront it, uh, right? I mean, we, 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 uh, we couldn't get there with moral risk. I mean, we can't get there through virtue, but it's interesting that you're working with the tools of the dominant paradigm and risk is something that people start listening to. That's right. That's uh, so, right. We hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, but but it's a way in. So I mean, obviously, I mean, not to sound too stereotypical, and here to you know to you know to overgeneralize, but um, I mean, the woman's body has been highly politicized, mostly by males, right? And so males do have a, a disconnect there because we don't, you know, we're not living a female body, but yet right. power because the power, the way the power has unfolded, there's a certain amount of legislating the body that's taking place. Now, the male, the male body though does have a disproportionate access to capital and is really interested in how capital works. So, ding, 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 if all of a sudden you tell me, if I hire 2,000 employees and you're saying that that's actually gonna put me in an anti-competitive position, which is what I'm thinking about, I'm not thinking about the woman's body in the context of a, a, a political thing, um, but I do think about it in terms of this, not I, Gino, but just sort of the universal. Yeah, right. I think it's genius, um, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and I just love this idea of backing into sort of this fiduciary frame um, and metaphor. And really, I think that's the beauty of how impact can actually infiltrate legacy frameworks and systems is through this risk component because business is obsessed with risk and you know they're obsessed with risk so the risk language becomes a way in to talk about things and to also give to to give your efforts the kind of tailwind that it needs to supersede 
the inevitable non-referential political realm, which just seems maddening. Um, mm -hmm. But to actually say, look, we can't, you know, yes, we can compete at some level at the political realm, but obviously we're getting outplayed because the political realm, it has been reframed rhetorically on us in ways that we're sort of like caught up in a web uh, right now. So how can we see remaneuver to put forth our, you know, our interest as well? I mean, do you sort of say, so, I mean, is that language of risk? Like oh yeah. I think, I think that you've said it really well and it certainly applies to the area that I care so much about with, um, with access to reproductive health care, but it plays out, it could play out exactly the same with climate um, and, um, and, and uh, fair housing or poverty yeah. alleviation that, that in many ways, um, the public sector, you know, public companies and the private sector, but public companies in particular, because of their enormous workforce, have an opportunity to be our new civil society. And there's so much um, evidence that Today's workforce, largely younger, much more diverse, really expects their employer to look out for them and to stand up for them. And whether it's by being public in, um, in a political situation or signing onto an amicus brief at the Supreme Court or stopping their political spending for egregious candidates that actually are running counter to their public brand or what they say are their corporate um, socially responsible uh, priorities. Um, that to the extent that we can make all of these issues much more transparent, make it clear that it's an economic imperative, it's not just social, it's not just moral, um, we think that there's a winning argument there and that we're going to get to a tipping point. And especially at times like this when there's a vacuum of moral leadership and economic leadership too yeah. um, at the state and national level, I think it's, it's, we got to fill that void. And um, whether it's Patagonia or Ben and Jerry's or Home Depot, I don't care. Um, they've got a huge, huge opportunity to step in and um, step up. Wow. What beautiful work. Well, we have Ruth Shaber here with us and um, a new civil society. Is, is that the term you mentioned there in your last response? Yes. I love it. I want yes. to end, I, I live, I want to end up on that term, a new civil society. And so much of what you're working on with uh, Terra Health Foundation, which um, you founded and currently lead along with, um, you know, an extensive team and a lot of affiliations and networks, um, I'm presuming as well. I really want to uh, thank you for actually sharing a journey that has demonstrated uh, very distinct chapters. And yet at the same time, I feel like you articulated the uh, threads that ran through it. And then um, also just making it personal, realizing that along the way that I also was um, confronting this notion of who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I always learn something. Um, when I get a chance to, to delve deeper into things like this and my own motivation. So I'm very grateful for the time. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. <laughs>